God for his protecting mercies. I'm acutely aware of being half blind how much I almost run into stuff. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to John chapter 6. I just read from verses 32 to 35 as part of our observance for the Lord's Supper. And we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 29. This two paragraphs are the setup for the big I am statement where Jesus says, I am the bread of life, which we'll be looking at next week. But even though this is the setup for that, it is still rich and full and more than we can chew and swallow in and of itself. At least it was for me as I was preparing and studying through this. So as has become our practice and will be continued for quite a while, it looks like, Randy is going to come up and read this passage for us because when I try to read, I miss words. The following day, the people who stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was no other boat there except the one which his disciples had entered and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. However, other boats came from Tiberias near the place where they ate bread when the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they also got into the boats and came to Capernaum looking for Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for that food which endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you from God the Father, has sent his seal on him. Then they asked him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Thank you, Randy. So as we look at this passage and start to look at what is this thing? What does it mean to be doing the works of the Father? Well, there's a lot to get to. At least there was to me. For me, it was like, what do I leave out? That was the hard part. It wasn't figuring out what to say. It was figuring out what not to say. And so let us start with saying to the Father that we need His help understanding this. Oh, Lord... In your rich, rich, rich love and mercy, you have given us your word. And we ask, Father, that in this time, as we look deeply into your deep, deep love, that you would open the eyes of our hearts, the eyes of our minds, the eyes of our souls, so that we would see and hear what it is from this passage, from these truths that you have given us, what we need for today. In this day when there is so much struggle, so much to be fearful of, 
We ask for your power and might to be poured out upon us, that we would not give into the spirit of fear, but that we would give ourselves to the spirit of truth and hope, that we would be courageous and not fearful. And we thank you for loving us this much in everything that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So on the next day refers to this idea that, uh, as we looked at last week, Jesus had been on the mountainside with his disciples. He had fed the 5,000. The crowd decides, hey, this is really great. Let's make this guy king. And Jesus, understanding what it is they're about to do, puts the disciples in a boat and sends them across the Sea of Galilee towards Capernaum. And he goes up on a mountain, dismisses the crowd, and goes up onto the mountaintop to pray. And then, of course, the storm swells up. The disciples are caught in the middle of this big storm, and they're freaking out. And Jesus comes walking to them on the water. And then it says, the way John records it, and then when Jesus had taken them into the boat, they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. And then the next day, the next morning at sunrise, the crowd that had remained on the other side of the sea was looking for Jesus. See, they had stayed around to see what Jesus would do the next day. I mean, it's not hard to grasp and comprehend, and it's actually kind of easy to find ourselves thinking and feeling the same way. They look, hey, Jesus just miraculously fed all of us, seven to 10,000 of us, maybe more, with just this little bit of food that he had to work with. This is amazing. It's just like what Moses did in the wilderness. What's he going to do today? And so they hang around. They're like, look, he's up on the mountainside. We'll just hang out down here along the coast waiting for him to come down and we'll see what he does today. So we'll just wait for him. Yet the next morning he wasn't there. He was gone. He was in Capernaum with the disciples because of the events we looked at last week with him walking on the water. And this is the part that's always fascinated me. Like, I mean, the Sea of Galilee is not that massive. I mean, did they not experience the storm that was on the lake that night when they were over there on this lake shore? And how did Jesus walk? How did Jesus get from the top of the mountain through all of them with none of them seeing him walk through there? Well, of course, I mean, you know, there's all kind of possible explanations and they're not really that critical, are they? The part that really matters is the crowd was clueless that Jesus was not there. Somehow he makes this transition from where he was, past all of them, through this big storm, without anybody in the crowd realizing that he was missing. And I suppose there's probably some spiritual truth for us to glean from this. You hang around to the place where Jesus has worked a miracle looking for him to do another one, but he's not there. It seems to be the case that Jesus is always going. He doesn't hang around for the next day. He seems to be moving on to something else. And that seems to be the case here. He has someplace else to go, something else to do, and there's no reason for him to hang around and do another party trick for this group. So he moves on. 
But then there's this other thing. Like, why did the other boats come there? These boats were in Tiberias, which was a big city. Well, I mean, by their standards, a big city. They're on the lake. It was the Roman headquarters for this region of Galilee. Herod was probably had his throne room there in Tiberias. And we already know from the beginning of this passage that the place where Jesus fed them was a desolate place. Why were people getting in boats and leaving Tiberias to come to an empty, dead space on the side of the lake shore? It had nothing to draw them there. Why would they go there? Especially a flotilla of boats from Tiberias. What could possibly draw them there? The most logical conclusion is that word had already spread to Tiberias of the miraculous feeding the day before. And now crowds were coming from Tiberias to see Jesus and see what kind of miracle he would perform today. But Jesus wasn't there. So they all get into these boats and decide to go to Capernaum and try to find Jesus. And the crowd does find him. But unfortunately, as we see from Jesus' own interactions with the crowd, they were looking for the wrong Jesus. See, they came looking for another miraculous meal. You say, well, that's kind of a harsh judgment. But Jesus said that's what they were doing. I mean, he says it right there when he says, Jesus answered them in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. They were just looking for another miraculous meal. Moses did it for 40 years, so how long is Jesus going to do it? But notice Jesus' response. He cuts right to the heart of their question. You didn't come because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill. What? How could they not see the sign? They sat there and watched him miraculously feed 7, 10, maybe 15, even possibly 20,000 people miraculously. How could they not see that? They were there experiencing it. Verse 30 shows that they didn't believe in Jesus as the Son of God yet. When it says, So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What? You were just yesterday seeing this amazing sign, and you're telling me you don't see that as a sign? How can you not see that as a sign? They couldn't see it as a sign for the same reason that we couldn't see who Jesus was until he opened our eyes. Even the disciples, as we read from the triumphal entry, at what was looking like the crowning moment of Christ as king of Jerusalem, still couldn't understand who he was and what was happening because their eyes hadn't been opened. Just like our eyes, until our eyes were opened, we couldn't see and understand who he really was. And so was this crowd. Even despite the amazing miracle and sign that it was, they just couldn't see it yet. They were blinded to the meaning of the miracle. And then here in the middle of all this, Jesus makes this very stunning command. 
in verse 27. Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, the God the Father has set his seal. So, okay, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to try to make sense of this command not to work for food that perishes. But a man's got to eat. I mean, Jesus is he, is he speaking literally here when he says this and metaphorically? Or, I mean, <sighs> man's got to eat. Look here, I ate before I got here, and I'm going to eat. Before we get done here, I'm going to want to eat again. It's one of my wife's great frustrations with me. As soon as I finish one meal, I'm asking, what are we doing for the next? We toil away for the needs and wants of this world, yet they are never enough. What we need is not bread that does not last us, but eternal life that lasts for eternity. We need both. But we tend to focus on the physical bread. We focus on where's the next meal coming from instead of focusing on how will he provide the next meal while I enjoy the gift of eternal life? The crowd, because their eyes were blinded to who he was and to what he had done and what it meant, they couldn't comprehend this idea of eternal life. It doesn't take very much effort to recognize their situation and to be sympathetic to their plight. You know, Israelites living in Galilee, even in Galilee, as great as Galilee was, Israelites living in Galilee under the Roman rule were pretty poor. And where the next milk was coming from wasn't just an esoteric philosophical question. It was a reality most of the time. They lived hand to mouth. And so Jesus provides this amazing meal and they're like, wow, can we get some more of that? But we understand the same feeling. Maybe we don't understand it in terms of the next meal because of the blessings God has given us here in this world, in this life, in this time, in this place where we often have plenty to eat or at least enough to know that we're going to be able to eat again before the and the next meal comes around. But we still, even as believers, we experience the great love of Jesus. We experience this deep sense of worship of him, whether individually in our private worship time or corporately together in church. And we're like, can I get some more of that? I want more of it. And I'm not ashamed to admit it, that whether it's here with you singing or at home in my own private worship, and the spirit just sort of pours out and, and it's like joyous and glorious and amazing and wonderful. Can I get some more of that? I'm not ashamed to admit I want more. That is certainly one that's never enough. I always want more. But we need both, though we focus often on the physical part. And yet, we understand that from the previous day's events that this crowd is really seeking more than just another meal. They're seeking more than food from Jesus, just like we do. Look, the crowd wanted a king. 
They wanted a political deliverer to give them the culture and kingdom they wanted. And their want wasn't bad. They wanted the restoration of the kingdom of David with all of its glory in the temple and all of its joy of worship the way it was designed to be under the best of times in Israel. That's not a bad thing to want. They just wanted the culture and kingdom that they wanted. And so do we. See, we want Jesus to come and transform our culture into a kingdom like we want. And our want isn't bad. We want it to look like the kingdom of heaven. We ask for it. We constantly ask him to do this. We even look to the end times, hoping that this is the end times so that Jesus will return and usher in his great kingdom that fast. He could have done it yesterday and it wouldn't have been fast enough. We want the kingdom of heaven here on earth, but we can't have it. We just can't have it here. We can have glimpses of it. We can have moments of it. We can get taste of it in the glories of worshiping Jesus and our fellowship together. But we can't have it completely. And the reason we can't is because this earth must pass away and be remade before we can have heaven on earth. This earth as we know it, this world as we know it, can never become the kingdom of God we want. It has to perish and be remade. It, this world, has to have a resurrection. But a resurrection requires death first. It can't be remade until it's destroyed. Maybe we don't recognize that completely intellectually, but we sort of innately understand it. Our own lives are living examples of this principle and idea. We are not what we were. As a result of Christ's redeeming work and the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit and the transforming us and maturing us and growing us in Christ, we are not what we were. We had to die to live again, to be remade and to be reborn into what he's created us to be. We had to spiritually and emotionally, in a sense, die. The old person we were had to die. And we understand that we've all been there as followers of Jesus. So we just can't have heaven on earth because it has to pass away and be remade. We're never going to get what we really want in this world, in this life. But praise God, we're going to get it. Hallelujah, praise Jesus, we're going to get it. We're just not going to get it today, more than likely. Then Jesus makes this stunning claim here at the end of verse 27. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Um... What is God's seal? Jesus says God's placed a seal on him. What is that, Jesus? I don't know what you're talking about. He's referring to, we think, the practice of sealing an official document by the ruler or the governing officials. 
we're familiar with this from medieval times in all the movies we've seen where the Lord or the king writes out an edict or a proclamation or an order and then rolls it up into a scroll and pours a little wax on the end and stamps it with his individual seal and then sends it forth to the next governing authority to, to receive it. This is most likely what Jesus is referring to, this idea that God has put his seal on him as the declaration of the promised one. And okay, all right, so I get the metaphorical image you're talking about here, Jesus, but what is the seal? This, I mean, there has to be something real and physical to be a seal itself, even though it represents in symbolic ways. The symbol has to have something real to symbolize. What is it? Well, John records this in the past tense. God has set his seal on him. And that means we can look backwards. And most likely this is referring to the descending of the spirit at Jesus's baptism as God setting his seal, his official proclamation and declaration that this is my son. And then also the signs that Jesus had already done serve as the seal that he is who he says he is that God really has anointed him as the chosen one. Yet, at the same time, we cannot overlook the reality that this event is occurring in Passover, as John tells us at the very beginning of chapter 6, that it was Passover when Jesus fed the 5,000. And here it is the next day, still part of the Passover season, and he is saying that God has set his seal on him during this Passover time. As John often does, this is just dripping with the foreshadowing of God's ultimate seal on Jesus, his resurrection from the dead. Now, as you can imagine, this will be a significant subject for next Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But know this. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not real, we are to be pitied most among all mankind. Make no mistake, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a literal historical event where his physical body rose from the dead. And that was the ultimate seal of God's approval on Jesus as who he says he is. And then we come to this kind of the question that's really hung in the air since the beginning of this passage. The one that, that hangs in the air even today of what must we do to be doing the works of God? I mean, the crowd's question is reasonable. I mean, you probably wondered the same thing when you read verse 27 or heard Randy read it to us. And Jesus' response to what is the work? Look, Jesus, okay, Jesus, I got it. I understand this. Just tell me, what do I got to do? Right? Every one of us says that to him every day. Just tell me what you want me to do. Just tell me what to do. And Jesus tells them. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Wait, is eternal life really that easy? Is it really that easy? Just believe you're really God's son? Yes and no. 
Yes, the works of God is faith in who he has provided for us. Do do you see the double word play of Jesus here? Jewish tradition put the works of God in acts only he could do. The question itself was almost ridiculous. What are the works of God we must do? You can't do the works of God. And Jewish tradition recognized that and put the works of God on him that only he could do. But at the same time, it put salvation, as Jewish tradition put the works of God only in him, it put salvation in the work of keeping the commandments. Under Jewish tradition and Jewish faith, you are saved by keeping the law, which they couldn't. And Jesus says, the work of salvation is to believe in me. Jesus turns both of these on their head. The work of salvation is to do faith in him. What do I do? Do faith. Wait a minute, that's ridiculous. You don't do faith. You either have it or you don't have it or you act out it or you don't act out it. You don't do faith. That's a ridiculous statement. Take that up with Jesus. Not my problem. Do faith in him. A work that no man can do on his own. This is why it's not contradictory. It takes the work of God for you and I to have faith in him. The work of believing in Jesus requires a work of God by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Then I can confess with my mouth what my heart and mind have come to believe. Jesus is Lord. I didn't get there by myself out of my own wisdom and intelligence. I got there because the Holy Spirit, out of God's loving mercy and kindness towards me, pulled back the blinders and let me see him as the glorious, joyous Savior he is and that I needed him and that I could believe in him. Believing in Jesus is more than just believing Jesus is God's only son, our Redeemer, though. That's the no part. The yes part, it's really that simple. Believe that he is who he says he is. He is our Savior, our Redeemer. The no part is it means living like we believe it. I don't know, but like it's really easy to tell somebody you love them. It's really hard to actually love them. Have you ever noticed how that, like, oh, I love you. Yeah, 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 I love you. Please don't ask me to do something that's loving. As long as I can just say it and not actually do it, everybody's okay and everything's great. But if I actually have to act like I love you, it's such a bother. I feel like Winnie the Pooh. Oh, bother. I have to actually love you. (laughs) Believing in Jesus means living like we believe it which means I got to stop living like I still trust myself and still trust myself to save myself. I'm going to save myself by observing the law. I believe in Jesus and keeping my righteousness by doing righteous things. Okay, we need to sit down and have a little conversation. I don't think you quite understand salvation by faith if you're still trusting in your own righteousness. And I know... I, I, I. I'm not just like criticizing somebody who says they still trust in themselves. I was that guy. For decades after I confessed Jesus as Lord, I still...
still believed I had to do my own righteous deeds. Look, this is what I mean by it takes a miraculous working power of the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. I believe Jesus was who he said he was. I knew the word very well. Yet I still believed in my own righteous works. Making me clean. I know what that's like. And I know what a frustrating, impossible, never ever getting there feeling it is. And because I know that, and because now I know the truth, I can say to you, let it go. All the things you do to be righteous is never going to be enough. I'm not just saying that theologically and ontologically, that it will not be enough by the word of Scripture or by God's own choice of words. I I mean that experientially, like it's never going to be enough for you. Because every time you do it, you'll know you didn't do it perfect. You'll know there's just a little bit less than what it should be. And you'll know it should have been better. Because that's what I experienced. And everybody who's ever been down this path tells me the same thing. It's never enough. No matter what I do, it's not enough. Let it go. Let it go and trust in Jesus' righteousness for your salvation and your cleansing and your being justified. What joy that brings. What relief that brings to be justified finally after all these decades to finally be justified. Why did I take so long to do this? Why did I fight it for so long? This is just glorious. It's just beautiful. It's, it's, it's relieving. It's fulfilling. Live like you believe he is your redeemer and your righteousness. Okay, so what? Thank you very much for this intellectual experience into the understanding of ancient Israeli culture during the Roman rule around the region of Galilee. Thank you for that. So what? Well, the very first and most important impact of all these truths is the one I just labored at, Believe that Jesus is God's Son. Believe that there is no other name by which men may be saved. Because there is no other name that can save us. None. Nothing. Not Mao. Not Stalin. Not Marx. Not Buddha. Not Muhammad. Not Confucius. Not Apollo. Not Zeus. None. None of those can save us. There is one name by which we are saved. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Like Peter, cry out, Lord, save me. And don't be afraid to cry that out every day. Because every day I need saving again. Because I do stupid stuff and need saving again. Now, I don't, of course, I do not mean that I am lost my salvation 
and that somehow I'm in danger of the pit of hell if I don't quickly reclaim Jesus' salvation. That's stupid. What I mean is, I forget who I am and I go back to who I was. And I go under the waves of doubt and lies. And when I'm under the water, I need Jesus to pull me out of the water just like Peter. The other so what is Jesus is not our fast food vending machine. I'm going to shatter some people's happiness with this one. But I'm just in a shattering mood, so what? Deal with it. Jesus is not our fast food vending machine. Despite his abundance provision for us here in this life, he is not about doling out cash like the government on a spending spree. That is not who Jesus is. That's what the crowd wanted and like it or not, whether you admit it or not, that's what we want too. On our bad days, we just want Jesus to dole out the cash and make it painless too. Don't make me do nothing for it. He knows no matter how much we seek the things of this world, they will not satisfy our souls. Look, Tom Brady has won more Super Bowl trophies than anybody on the planet, and it's still not enough for him. J. Paul Getty was the richest person ever in the history of humanity in the 1920s, and his statement for how much was enough? One dollar more. No matter how much it is, it's just not enough. It'll never be enough. There will never be enough to satisfy us, including the political climate that we want. This is the part I said I would shatter your happiness. We're just not going to get it. We can get pieces of it at times by God's mercy and kindness, but we're just not going to get it. Because it can't happen in this fallen world until it dies and is remade. And in my mind, nothing brings into focus living like we believe Jesus is God and Jesus is God's son than Passion Week. Let this week, our Lord's redeeming work on the cross, be a week when you just don't intellectually assent to his redeeming work but a week when we contemplate his work and its impact on our life here and in eternity. Am I a different person because I believe Jesus died on the cross for me? If the answer is no, then we need to go back to the starting base, go back to the foot of the cross and revisit this subject of Jesus died on the cross for you and me. I need to revisit that subject at the foot of the cross if I'm not a different person. And after doing all of the above, contemplating on the wondrous work he's done, living like we really believe he is God's son, after we've done all this, live in joy. Part of the reason he takes all the righteousness and gives it to us so that we don't have to earn it on our own, part of the reason he washes away our sins with his blood is so we can have joy. This may come as a shock for some of you. God has no joy in your unhappiness. Have you ever, I mean, look, he's not that different than us in that he doesn't really like being around people who are always unhappy. Like, we all know the person that no matter what, 
They're just never happy. You can't make them happy. And nobody likes being around that person. If you trust in Jesus, don't be that person. On top of the fact that God doesn't want to be around you when you're like that, you should have the joy of your salvation lifting you up in the darkest of moments and circumstances. I I know how bad things can get at times. How impossible it seems that there's any way out other than a bullet to the head. But it's just not true. It's a lie. A lie perpetrated by the enemy of our souls so that we'll actually act on the lack of faith we have in Jesus. Live with joy for our salvation and reconciliation with our God and Father. Look, we can have fellowship with Jesus and with God because of what he's done for us. That's something to have joy in and live joyfully through. Have fun talking to God. Yes, I actually said that. Have fun talking to God. Don't be afraid to talk to him like he's the principal at your school. And I know most of you stayed in trouble in your schools. And going to the principal office meant you were in trouble. And you never wanted to talk to the principal. That's not God. That's not our father. Our father is the one who enjoys being with us and us being with him. Live in that joy. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for loving us this much. Thank you for actually wanting us to be with you and to do things with you and to talk to you and and just this is too much to absorb. But I want more of it anyway. Please give it in Jesus name. Amen.